You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Sam Raimi, the director of The Evil Dead. I've invited uh, Jonathan Ross to see my new movie, Evil Dead 2. Oh, I don't believe this. Say, so you uh, you think this will scare the audience as much as the first one? Yeah, that's a safe bet, Sam. It's uh, got a lot more surprises. Hey folks, welcome to a very special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. I've talked with Bruce Campbell. This will be the third time that we've spoken since 1996, maybe? 95, something like that. Spoke with him. He was actually the very first interview I ever did. And that was for Cashiers to Cinemart, the zine I used to do way, way back in the 90s. He was gracious enough to be the very first person to ever say yes to an interview. Not only did he answer questions through email, but also through the phone, regaled me with some amazing stories, and I will always be grateful to him for that. A few years later, I was doing a gig at a place called Detour Mag, which was an online place, and I got the opportunity to talk with him again because we're doing a screening of I can't remember if it was Evil Dead 1 or 2, but here in local Detroit area, it was part of a big tour he was doing and spoke to him while he was going through a car wash. Luckily, it was not an audio interview. Spoke with him again today about a watch party that is happening in just a few weeks, April 24th, 2021. It is Evil Dead 2 with live commentary from Bruce Campbell. A few months ago, they did Evil Dead 1. Now they're back with Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. It is going to be one hell of a time. I will include a link to where you can buy tickets for this in the show notes for this episode. Be sure to click on that and uh, order up your tickets. They've got different levels of pricing and stuff. There's some VIPs. There's some extreme VIPs. And then there's the basic Evil Dead 2 package. Just FYI, this is only available in the U.S. and Canada. But if you are in those countries, definitely, definitely check this out. You're going to want to spend Saturday night, April 24th, with Bruce, listening to some amazing stories and watching probably one of the best movies ever made. So let's go ahead and play that interview. Be sure to buy your tickets and enjoy. I sat through the Evil Dead screening, and it was just fascinating to hear you tell these stories live as you're watching the movie. How was that experience for you? Good, because it's the way you want to do it. Because when you do a live commentary, the movie ain't stopping. And you'll be off on some bullshit tangent, and you look back and go, oh, wait a second, I want to say this thing about the thing with the thing. And I just, if you can stop it now, I've got a stop and start button, and I'll just pause it, and nothing's going to get passed. So it makes the screening longer, obviously. It's about an extra half hour of stories with the thing but and some stuff can be told while it's happening but in many cases if you want to do enough backstory you got to just stop and go that reminds me and so it'll be the same basic format uh the first one uh, played very well and had good response so evil dead 2 has been a pretty popular one of the three of the initial first three movies so we expect the same for that and then we'd move on to army of darkness and then I'd, I would just keep going. I'd, I would basically 
do a comment. I'd do Bubba Hotep. I'd, I would do, you'd even, I'd even do a cheese ball one with Man with a Screaming Brain and Alien Apocalypse because those movies were made in Bulgaria. It's enough. There's an hour and a half of stories just by shooting in Bulgaria, you know. So even if the movie wasn't the big splashy success, sometimes it can be fun to dissect what it was like to just make the stupid thing. So uh, I look forward to it, whatever. But it's a new form of entertainment that I think is going to stick around because it's COVID friendly, obviously. And uh, people are getting a lot more used to streaming. You know, we're a lot more COVID savvy. We've, we've upgraded our TVs and our sound systems. And I think we've realized that we may not get back into that theater. I mean, we will to some degree starting pretty much right now, but live venues and conventions, who knows, man, who knows when that's coming back. I have some live venues booked for later in the year, but that's like September, October, where hopefully the vaccines are up. COVID is down. It's all a big waiting game right now. Now, are you doing these live? No, just do it live. Everyone tunes in. You get a sense of something happening at a certain time. And uh, I don't mind the live aspect. I mean, it's not like it has to be perfect. You're just telling stories. I live in Oregon, and the first one, they had to have the right type of facility to do the satellite. And so I drove up to Portland and did it in a small studio there. I'm working in Los Angeles now, so I'm going to do that here. I'll beam it live from Los Angeles. I was curious if you were back to work. Yeah, I am. I'm on my fourth COVID show. I've been seeing the masks and the shields for, I'm the most tested man on the planet, I think. Finally got my vaccine. That's good. I'm glad. You got both shots? I did, I did the Johnson & Johnson one and done. It's, it was available. And sooner than I had booked anything else, I went, okay, I'm doing this. While the pandemic was raging, were you still able to work? Were you still able to do at least voice work? Because I know you've done a lot of things like uh, Last Kids on Earth, those things. Yeah, 2020 was not supposed to be a work year for me. I was going to not tour. I was going to write. I just finished up an office uh, out in the boonies where I, I live. And um, so the timing of it wasn't bad. I mean, I wrote two screenplays in a book, you know, while I was trapped up there with my wife. And um, so it was a very productive time. But then I honestly started to feel sorry for my own industry because we were branded non-essential. And I'm like, fuck that, man. What do you mean non-essential? What is everyone doing during the pandemic? Watching every movie every TV show, listening to every record, podcast, reading every article, the arts was drained by COVID. So my industry is like, we came, we're roaring back because we realize there's a massive hole now that has to be filled because everyone's watched everything. They've binge watched every season of everything. So they need new stuff and we're happy to help them out. So it was nice to see my industry get a foothold, but I, I started to tour again as early as July of 2020. I did driving because look, they're COVID safe. You don't even, if you don't want to get out of your car, don't get out of your car. It's not that crappy speaker on your window anymore. It comes through your car stereo. Uh, they put a camera on me up on a stage. So even if you can't really see me in real time, my face is up on the big screen and my wireless microphone that I have in my hand goes right to your speaker. So it was a good scenario for a lot of people. We even did photo ops where you separated me and some the person taking the picture by like we had like a zombie dummy that we put in the middle so it kept our distance i never moved 
people would step up, take their mask off, take the picture, and then they'd go back the way they came. And uh, it worked. It worked like gangbusters. So we, I did a couple of drive-ins. Uh, and then I did a thing in Boise that was like they could do 25% capacity. So we booked a 2,000-seat theater in order to sell 500 tickets. So very strange. Where you, you Like we sold out technically, but you look out and you feel like a loser. They haven't even come close to filling the place. And it's like, wow, what a weird world this is. So I tried to do a few things and then basically stuck it out like everybody else. And then I did a new movie called Black Friday in December in Boston. Uh, then I did another series and I just finished a pilot for ABC. And then I'm going to do a little part on AP Bio, the show with Pat Oswalt. So I'm doing that this week. So yeah, we're, we're back at it, man. I test on Sunday in order to work on a Monday. I'm testing tomorrow in order to work on Thursday. It's just, the whole thing is just out of whack. But my industry is doing a good job. They have zero tolerance for this uh, no mask bullshit, you know. And when you're on set, it's not only a mask, you have to add a shield. So they're all Darth Vader. Every All the crew members are Darth Vader. It's just, you know, it's an adjustment. And thankfully... Uh, the one nice thing about people in the film business is they're adaptable and they're used to long periods without pay. They're used to tap dancing a lot. I, I'm just glad I'm back in LA. I don't live here, but I'm being going past grip trucks and lighting trucks and steak beds. And I'm like, yeah, we're back. And you see all the Warner Brothers logos on the truck. They used to be an annoyance to me on the freeway. Now I'm like, those are my people. And it just was great to get back on a, the back lot whether the CBS Radford or Universal and, you know, it's just, you know, this is where we belong. We belong on this back lot to, to work. And I actually think this COVID might bring some productions back to the U.S. because they're like, hey, we can't predict Canada or uh, Europe because everyone spikes and does all these crazy things just to manage their own situation. So I'm kind of hoping they pull it back a little bit. It's like the desire to make things in America again. The same goes for movies and TV shows. We should be making that shit right here. Well, it's funny because I know you've worked a lot in New Zealand, and they have COVID completely locked down. I'm surprised they're not saying, come on over, Bruce. That's where we're doing the new Evil Dead movie. We have a new director handpicked by Mr. Sam Raimi, Lee Cronin, and uh, they're going to start shooting a month or so. That's the only place you can get insurance to do stuff, you know, where they... They don't feel like they're going to get shut down every two minutes. Is that going to pick up from the the the, the fourth one and then introduce you into it, or is this continuation of the Army of Darkness? No, no, my part is done. This is another. This is another remake. This is another. It's just you know what it is at this point. It's another Evil Dead movie, and marketing people don't like to hear that, but that's kind of true. It's a new director. It's an urban version. It's a very updated, I would call it a very updated, relevant Evil Dead. It's going to be fun. And the, the craftsmanship of the crews in New Zealand, you know, we did Ash versus Evil Dead there a couple of years ago. And it's hard to beat them. It's really, people used to always make fun of how crappy the low budget effects were for Evil Dead and stuff like that. Now it's like, fuck you. We got the real people doing this shit now. I mean, Weta is just amazing what they do. Yeah, they're all good. They're all good. They got trained on Hercules and Xena, half those guys, you know. And then, uh, God, I, I've been down there for four different TV shows. Did I read right that you are portraying Richard Nixon in a film coming up? Yeah, it's called 18 and a Half. It's the missing Nixon tapes. 
That was the amount of time missing on the tapes was 18, 18 and a half minutes. So it's a story of what happened to the tapes. And it's a very interesting story. And you'll get, you'll actually get to hear the tapes play out in the background of some other action. So I play Nixon on those tapes. Uh, Ted Ramey's involved. John Cryer is involved. They got, they got some fun people to come in and do uh, different voices. So yeah, so I played Reagan now and now I can check the box of playing Nixon. Yeah, I was so surprised to see you show up as Ronald Reagan in Fargo. Yeah, well, someone's got to play it. Well, what that was is my buddy John Cameron, who produces the show, we're high school buddies. I used to imitate Reagan all the time in the 80s. We grew up, Reagan, you know, that was, my family was young at that time, and you couldn't get Reagan off the air in the 80s. So, I mean, I, we imitated him mercilessly. So I think when it came time to cast this part, Cameron's like, I know who we can get. Let's just get Campbell to do this. But, you know, you got to tone it down and make it more user-friendly. It's not an SNL skit. Or, or like a Johnny Carson version of Ronald Reagan. I seem to remember years and years ago, you were in some local TV commercials for WNIC. I think it was Jim Harper. Yeah. How did you get involved with those? Oh, you know, I was a production assistant for at least a year in Detroit. I worked with a guy named Vern Nobles, and he had a production company. And we just met all kinds of, I met other producers, I met, God, just I, I figured out how the business worked. I found out where all the companies were in Detroit, where the labs, where the rental companies were, where you rented sound equipment, where you rented uh, lighting equipment. So it was very educational. And so what happened is I then finally joined with the talent agencies of Detroit. You sign up with all of them because none of them are exclusive. And I went into audition, and one of them was a producer I'd worked for as a PA. And he's like, what are you doing here? You should be getting me coffee. I went, hell no, man. I can do what those idiots do. Give me the part. You should give me the part. I mean, I could really, I knew the guy so I could mess with him, you know. And uh, I got the part and then I started doing what's called industrials. I posted a thing on Instagram. It was a thing I did for Pontiac. That's how I got my Screen Actors Guild card. Because in Detroit, it's a very union town. And so the Screen Actors Guild, if you, you know, if you did an acting job, for a car company, it was union. So my first gig was union and it paid for all my induction fees and, and everything. And I got into the union that way. It was very handy. That's one of the trickiest things for an actor. How do you get into the fucking Screen Actors Guild? That was a good way in. So that's how that came about. So I did commercials for, geez, I don't know, I did a half a dozen different commercials at various times. And I just have been salvaging them. They're all on three-quarter inch video. And this is a format that's about to die, and these tapes were about to die. So I had a guy digitize them all. So they're all in the cloud now, all these old commercials. I have Napa Auto Parts, lots of stuff, radio stations. Yeah, WNIC was one of them. You know, you make the rounds in Detroit. We, we tried to get ourselves into anything we could. I have to commend you on your April Fool's joke this year of the. Um... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta squeeze those out. All you gotta do is look at the date, and then you can feel pretty secure that it's bullshit. But you know, I have a good graphics guy. He 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 gets very good at that. He had a good one with Doctor Who a few years ago that they they found a new Doctor Who, and so he put me in the whole Doctor Who scenario. And I'll tell you, on Facebook, I mean, I don't get huge responses but that one just went apeshit because i was like oh my god i didn't realize how big the doctor who fan base was i mean it's extensive and so you got to dance around it because you don't want the studio lawyers to call you up and go uh cease and desist 
but I figure a little humor goes a long way. Just kidding. It's got to be kind of difficult for you, because I know that you have such a great fan community, and not to be able to actually interact with those folks. Like, you talked about the little theater, or the big theater with the little crowd. I imagine that's got to be a little difficult for you to not see your fans after this amount of time. Well, that's what I, yeah, I'll, oh yeah, I couldn't, I can't believe I will actually look forward to going back to a convention. I've done so many of them, you know, you tend to get a little blase after a while, and they look the same. What city am I in? Is this Madison or is this Trenton, New Jersey? Where, where are we? It can get a little overwhelming sometimes and it can wear you down, but I miss it. I miss the live interaction. I miss asking people what they do, signing crap. You see what they want you to sign. Like, is any of the new stuff coming in or is it just the old stuff? You get to do your own little market research at the same time. But mo- and the photo ops were always fun. People dressing up, doing weird shit, wanting strange poses, you know, me, me on my knee proposing to some chick. You know, we, I've got so many dumb poses that I, I, I have, I have 25,000 pictures in my library. Uh, yeah, I, I miss it. I officially miss it. And it's not dead. It's not dead. But, you know, I really feel for the people who run the big conventions because it's either all or nothing. And it's been nothing for a year. And, I can't imagine if someone said, Bruce, you're not making money for a year. I wouldn't be ready for that. You know, that would be a, that'd be a pretty nervous year of like, you know, you're not making money this year. And that's to have something like that ha- happen arbitrarily too, that people get screwed the most. Like, you know, some people rolled along like nothing was happening depending on their job. My brother works for a healthcare company in Michigan and they had just tried to get a bunch of millennials. So they had created like, thousands of new work at home jobs and they had done this for a couple of years. So when COVID hit, they went, well, let's just expand the system that we already have in place. And my brother hasn't lost a day of work. And yet uh, other people are sucking eggs. I wouldn't want to be a bartender right now. I mean, stuff is opening. So maybe this summer, you know, it'll happen, but boy, the service industry, ouch, movie theaters, ouch, you know, Alamo draft house, my beloved draft house. I'm like, fuck. It hurts because some of them will not make it. And I've done a lot of appearances at old movie theaters that are hanging on with volunteers, a young couple who's trying to fix the place up. And I'm like, what are they up to? Talking about the fans, I think it was 2007 when you were up in Toronto for My Name is Bruce. The thing that I heard the next day from Colin Geddes, the guy who used to run the Midnight Madness thing, was that you stuck around and signed and made sure everybody got their chance, their five minutes or however long to talk to you, and you would not leave until the last fan had been seen. And that just always sticks with me. Well, man, you can't, if, if you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. You can't walk out because I, I know certain celebrities that will remain unnamed who go, my allotted time is up. I'm out of here. Now at conventions, I do do head counts because we know how fast we can sign. And so we always tell them, you got to cap it at a certain number. You know, put somebody at the end of the line who caps it. That way, you feel confident you can get them all in. Now, if you don't cap it, that's where the problems come, that you're, a lot of time is up. And you look out, you got got 100 people. Some actors have left because they go, not my problem. But pe- people remember that. <laughs> Let's not kid ourselves. Fans are not dummies. They have long memories. 
No, your reputation in that regard is just absolutely stellar. And I have to tell you, I've gotten so much mileage out of the story you told me once about your work on Congo. We were only supposed to be there for two weeks. And weather came up occasionally that pushed things around. Their production was slow. So me and a couple of other guys, we were in the first expedition that went through. And we got killed, obviously. But it got spread out because they'd go to a new location. And then we would just walk through with backpacks because they just wanted us in that cool location. And then they had to shoot a whole week's worth of scenes at that location that didn't need us. So the call sheet would go up for the next day at 5 o'clock, and we knew a travel agency that was open until 6 o'clock. So at 5 o'clock, we'd run down and go, and we'd look to make sure we were on hold for the next day. That meant, you know, you're not being used. You're on hold. We're like, yeah, baby. Oh, we did road trips. We did river rafting. So thank you, Paramount. I was there for a month instead of two weeks. And that it happens sometimes. You know, we were the small. They were not about to worry about three or four of us actors not making that much money. Like, we were not the problem. So they're like, just string them along. It's a good place. To, because what I would do sometimes is I would even, if I knew they were going to go, oh, they're going to these crazy falls the next day. I'll go down there at call time and I'll get on the crew bus and the assistant director's looking at me like, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. I'm like, don't worry about it. I'm just, I'm just going along for the ride. And I, I'd go there, go to location. They also have craft service and food. I'd stay for lunch and have a nice lunch. Then I'd say to the transport guy, Hey, whenever someone's going back to the same area, I'll move your ride, but I won't, you know, don't make a special trip. And it always worked out fine. They were always shuttling people back and forth. So, yeah, man, we had it down. We had it down. <laughs> we were very clever. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the cool side of my pillow? Uh, it's my foray into self-publishing. I've done three books that were bestsellers. And, you know, the concept of touring is a little out the door right now. And until that kind of comes back, I thought, you know what? I'm going to start a media company, Eastmore Media, and I'm going to publish some damn books. So uh, that was one of the, that was a COVID book. I wrote that during COVID, The Cool Side of My Pillow. And it's it's just a book of essays, sort of to flesh out. It's not autobiographical, but it's stuff that did happen to me. It's not really about movies. It's about all kinds of stuff. So it's just another book. And uh, what I'm actually going to do, because movies are very hard to get financed, I realized I own probably a dozen projects, a dozen screenplays that I've either written or I've had writers write as a work for hire situation and I'm going to put them out as books. What the hell? And if, if one happens to really hit and sells a bunch and gets interest, I can go, well, let me blow the dust off this old screenplay here, you know, and we'll make it into a movie. So I'm just trying to stay proactive and it's fun. And I, I would rather get something out even in a different form than not get it out at all. Cause like the thought of having screenplays sitting on a shelf, just is infuriating to me. It's like we put a lot of effort and time into some of these things. I want this done, you know. That's what I'm in the process of doing on top of everything else, putting out more books. So that was the first of the Eastmore Media line. Uh, next is going to be a political satire called House Divided. Do you have any films that you're working on directing? Uh, if, if I can get financing, I'm looking for the sequel to My Name is Bruce. It's called Bruce versus Frankenstein. I want to have the idiot Bruce character go up against all the famous monsters. Bruce versus the mummy, Bruce versus the wolfman, Bruce versus Frankenstein. So I wrote the Frankenstein script also that I wrote that during COVID. 
And I'm working with Mike Richardson from Dark Horse Comics. He's my partner on it. So we're, we're trying to squeeze money out of a rock. So if that happens, I would direct that. Have you dabbled or gotten into like comic books much over the years? I wrote one comic for Dark Horse Comics. So I've, I've done it once. And it's a bit of a mind bender. The script that you turn in has to, it's a whole new format that's not screenplay version. Because you have to write the description of what you want them to draw. I'm not an artist, but, you know, you have to describe, like, the effort it takes to pull this thing up this hill that the guy has to strain or, you know, something. You have to give the artist. And then you're writing the description. Then you're writing the dialogue. It was a bit of a mind bender, but it was kind of fun. And I, I, I've always liked Dark Horse Comics because they're sort of the, you know, they're the underdog company. Was that Man with the Screaming Brain or something else? Oh, Screaming Brain, that actually came out too. That was, they, they published that one. Yeah, they did, they did a bunch of different covers for the Screaming Brain one. Yeah, so I've done a couple of comics. It's not big in my repertoire because I don't, it's weird. I don't write that much fantastical stuff. What are some of the ones that you have written over the last couple of months? As far as what? I mean, just writing projects? Yeah, one was uh, Bruce versus Frankenstein, and then another one is called House Divided, which I'm just going to turn into a novel. Will this be your first novel? I've written three bestsellers, uh, Hell to the Chin, Chin's Good Kill, and then another one called Make Love to Bruce Campbell Way. The audiobook of that is so good. It's the most expensive audiobook ever made. It is. It's the Titanic of audiobooks. That thing costs $60,000, believe it or not. Oh, my God. That's wild. Because we hired actors to do everything. It was basically a movie without the picture that you could close your eyes, crank it up, and you'd hear the sounds, the cars, crashes, punches, you know, even little bits of music. Yeah, it was very involved, but it was released not as an audiobook. It was released as a comedy album, and it kind of got buried. So I'm, that's when I'm going to buy back. Uh, it gets released back to me in a, geez, pretty soon, might even be this year. I'm just going to buy it back and reissue it through my own company. I imagine you probably hired people to do the sound effects, but it always reminds me of how you used to do a lot of sound editing. Yeah, well, it just makes us very involved. I mean, there are more skilled craftsmen than me that can use those machines and get good recordings. And they have good libraries now that you can access, so it's easy. I just finished a a comedy album called The Lost Recording. And it's basically the historian Lames Gipton. Uh, has found with, with great cooperation with the National Archives, the major studios, these outtakes from classic motion pictures. And so it's done the same way. It's everything but the uh, picture. And it's outtakes from Maltese Falcon, uh, obscure Robert Mitchum movie, making a Batman, Jack Nicholson arguing with uh, Tim Burton, Ted, Ted Raimi. Play. So it's me and Ted Raimi, we do all the characters in it. We've got the Nixon Nixon uh, meeting Elvis. We have John John Wayne shooting up the Oval Office during the Kennedy administration. There's a lot of weird shit. Uh, Sean Connery having troubles with his dentures. Yoda has a coke problem, and uh, yeah, so it's pretty weird. So I'm trying to find an outlet for that right now. Oh my god, that sounds fantastic. It's kind of cool because we did the old-fashioned camera noises, the big studio doors closing, the really loud, you know, like two-by-fours slapping together for the old slate, and just matching the atmosphere with the ambience. And I don't know, the guy, that my engineer, this guy in my, my local town, I mean, he's just, he and I have so much fun because he normally does local commercials. He doesn't get to do really whacked-out stuff. So 
he always gets excited when I show up because he's like, what are we doing now? I'm like, oh, I got something for you, pal. He loves just fiddling. He's really good. This guy, Sean McCoy. You know, it, that's one thing I'm going to miss. I'm going to eventually move out of Oregon. I'm coming back to the big, bad city. Yeah, I was great. It was great when I was 40. I didn't give a shit about any of that stuff. But now I'm like, you know, I, I want to have lunch with my old pals, you know? We have so much in common, and everyone's getting older now. And so, yeah, my wife and I are going to come back to Los Angeles. Fantastic. You still keeping your place up in Oregon as your home base? No. See you later. I just sold it. No. Yeah, I just I just closed. Game over. It's time for a new era. I was there 22 years uh, out of the out of away from this town. I ran screaming away from Los Angeles back then, you know, with my hair on fire. I didn't like it. It wasn't my bag. And nobody made anything in L.A. at that time. But, you know, a lot of production is coming back here, so I'm just going to work my way back. Bruce, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. You got it, my friend. So we'll, we're going to have fun on the 24th, obviously. We'll uh, tell ridiculous stories and um, try and keep it fun. It's, you know, it'll be same thing, different movie. Yeah, I really look forward to it. I had such a blast with the first one, and I just always love the stories that you tell. And, uh, God, the stories behind Evil Dead 2 are just fantastic, so I can't wait to hear them again. One of them that I'll tell is just a reminder that Stephen King helped us with that one, too. He supported us with a quote that we could use on the poster for the first one, which was he called it the most ferociously original horror film of the year. We're like, fuck, can we use that quote? And then he said, yeah. And we're like, oh, my God. So it really sent a force field up to protect us. But this one, we were having trouble getting the money for it. We had to let a crew member go who was helping us with budgeting and scheduling. And she went down to Wilmington, North Carolina, to work. Dino DeLorentis had a facility down there. And Stephen King was directing Maximum Overdrive. She gets on that crew. She's shooting the shit with Stephen King one day. He goes, what have you been working on? He goes, She goes, oh, I was trying to work on Evil Dead 2, but they couldn't get the money. And Stephen King goes, what? This is bullshit. So he calls Dino DeLorentis. He goes, Dino, these guys are trying to make Evil Dead 2. You should make it. And he goes, okay. So, I mean, we had a deal for Evil Dead 2 in about 10 minutes after he made that call. So he's helped us twice now. So if I ever meet him, I've never met him, I will sh- shake his hand or give him an elbow bump heartily because he, he really was instrumental. Because, you know, we, our second movie, Crime Wave, died a thousand deaths. And we really thought we were done. And so Sam was like, well, wait, maybe Ash didn't die, you know? And we're like, yeah, maybe he didn't. So that's, that's what sort of spawned that. But even then we were having difficulty making it. So hats off to Mr. King. Thanks for your time, sir. Well, thank you. This was such a pleasure. And um, I look forward to doing this again with you, maybe in another five, 10 years. Five or 10 years. That sounds good. Thank you, sir. Talk to you. Okay. Okay, Mike. Bye-bye. Bruce Campbell is the finest man to grace a silver screen All the other actors just degrade his noble scenes The Oscars should award him for his wondrous career Hold a town parade for him with each movie premiere Should be offered every lease. A man 
imagine him as Spider-Man, a finer choice indeed. Casablanca could have been improved, the Campbell would have said. Here's looking at you, you primitive screwhead. Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell. Campbell is a truly stellar man He bravely fought the deadites But a chainsaw took his hand Coincidentally, I have one I barely ever use I'll saw it off and ship it to The charming, handsome Bruce Google Maps, just watch you go pee. When I find you, I'm gonna clone you. 